This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 64 of On Another Track. What's really been interesting is the variety of people that are kind of really heading in your direction, you know, in terms of trying to readjust the workplace and really getting it to become a positive place for people to be. Yeah, we were we were cool before it was cool, I guess. Uh, that's what uh, maybe we were ahead of the curve. I, I don't know. No, it's uh, I just do it as sort of a pendulum. I think like uh, the pendulum swung so far in one direction over the last 50 years that it's probably just sort of swinging back. That's the voice this week of my guest, Ryan Steltzer. He's co-founder of Strategy of Mind. Welcome on to my podcast series on another track. We're here to explore people and places from around the world. We hear the stories that have transformed my guest's journey and help them get on another track. It's not always pretty, but if you need that practical advice to figure out the roadblocks ahead, then you can't go wrong by learning from other people's mistakes. It's an enlightening experience and a great journey. If you think Ryan's voice is familiar, you would be correct. He was my guest on episode three of On Another Track. One of the reasons for inviting Ryan back to On Another Track was to find out about his recent book, Think, Talk, Create. It's aimed directly at the employee in the cubicle looking at the corner office. With his co-founder, David Brindle, they take on the challenge of rehumanizing the toxic workplace. We also hear how you go from an idea on a napkin in a coffee shop to becoming the most read article on LinkedIn with over 300,000 views. Ryan's aim is to build the workplace fit for humans. I started first by asking Ryan how they got inspired to write the book. Well, I think it was the podcast interview with you. That was what it was, the catalyst. It was speaking with you. It just sort of um, yeah nudged us forward. No, we, we had been thinking about doing a book for some time. And we were trying to think about, okay, we have a clear message about trying to rebuild the workplace and sort of rehumanize the workplace, but what's the best way to put that in a book format? Because that's very different than an article, very different than uh, an interview. It's, you know, the book is uh, 60,000, 70,000 words. So we thought about it at, uh, for a bit and yeah, brainstormed some ideas. We had a great team working on the book. I think the, the key takeaway for me from this entire publishing experience was that I was very naive going into book writing, thinking that, oh, you just sit down, you and your co-author, you put some ideas on paper, you start, you know, the, you know, once upon a time, and then you write the book and it just sort of gets published. And that could not be farther from the truth. Uh, it is a team effort. And that's why the acknowledgement section is so long in all these books that you pick up, because there's, it really is, there's a lot of hands that touch it. We had a great publicist, um, great publisher, great editorial team, great, it was just a great agent and a developmental editor. So we were very fortunate. It was just a collaborative effort to sort of get this message out there that um, we need to rehumanize the workplace. I love the fact that you kind of explained there that writing a book is, yeah, it sounds great. It sounds easy, but the logistics are quite a nightmare. So really, from your perspective, did, were you very clear about what you wanted in the book? How did you strategize about what you wanted to and what you didn't want to include in the book, more, more importantly? Yeah. So when we first wrote the book and, and we pitched the book to different publishers, the original title of the book was actually go, it was going to be called Death by Numbers. Now, mind you, this is 2018. And of course, we had the COVID-19 pandemic and you cannot release a book in 2020 or 2021 called Death by Numbers. That would that it's not an appropriate title to put on shelves. Um, Absolutely. So we had to pivot a bit, actually, and the book was largely written already. So we had to go back and restructure it a bit. And um, we had originally thought of this idea of Think Talk Create as making it this sort of proactive, here's the practicum for how you can build humanized workplaces. And then we made that sort of shift to, okay, let's provide a 
broader context, death by numbers, we'll talk about the history of it. We'll talk about current, current events, and then we'll end with the proactive, what you can do. Um, so we had to sort of shuffle the deck a little bit and uh, because of world events. And so, yeah, here we are. And we had, we had the, uh, we're fortunate that we were able to do that and we caught it in time, but it was, uh, it was definitely a nerve wracking experience. Actually, it's quite funny as you say that. Uh, I remember way back in the early eighties, we had a, a new slimming um, product come on the market and it was called AIDS. It aids you in slimming. And you know what I'm going to say? It was exactly at the same time as the AIDS pandemic or the AIDS you know, virus starting to get into the you know the human race, and very quickly that it just failed. It fell at the first hurdle. God bless them. But uh, you know, so I do I do totally understand why you had to pivot. So from your perspective, so we can give uh, you know people an idea of where you're coming from in terms of the subject matter, because some people may not have heard your first podcast. Give everybody a little bit of a potted history of where you were coming from, and then we'll go back to the book in a second. So where does Ryan Steltzer and David Brendel come from, and what's your background, and what were you trying to do prior to the book? Yeah, David and I sort of have these unique paths uh, that led us together, and we were we went we ended up actually having attended the same school, though we never met at at, uh, at school. He's slightly older than me, which I always like to remind him. David and I both had backgrounds in philosophy as an undergraduate degree. So we pursued degrees in philosophy. And then I went into graduate school with every intent of uh, pursuing the PhD and staying on being in academia. And then uh, this opportunity presented itself in Washington. I ended up working at the White House for a little bit in the Obama administration and was a performance manager there and got to sort of see how, yeah, how performance works, how organizational performance works, how strategy works. And a lot of my colleagues uh, were consulting folks. So I had a lot of McKinsey folks, a lot of BCG folks uh, who had left consulting to go to work in government. And then I made the decision to leave government and go work into consult in, in consulting. And so worked in consulting for a bit and then start, yeah, started my own firm um, when I met David. And the, the way I met David, David's path was he was uh, philosophy. He ended up going to, he got a joint um, doctorate degree. So he has an MD and a PhD. He has a PhD in philosophy and an MD from Harvard Medical School. And he's a psychiatrist. He has been very successful in private practice. And he was featured in, in, a, uh, in an Economist article called Philosopher Kings. And it was talked about how he was using uh, techniques beyond medicine to treat patients. He, he, of course, prescribed medicine, but he also had dialogue and engaged and sort of had that sort of Socratic approach. And so I thought it was interesting and I wanted to connect with him. And I wrote him an email from my desk in Boston. And coincidentally, he was living in Boston at the time. And we grabbed coffee. Uh, this is back in 2015 and grabbed coffee. And a couple hours later, we had an idea for a company uh, sketched out on paper. So it was it was very serendipitous. One of those bizarre, um, bizarre moments where um, you just sort of connect with someone and yeah, he and I hit it off and have been uh, been uh, fast friends ever since. That's incredible hearing that story. You know, your paths were crossing already and you're interweaved, but you didn't realize that. And that's th those are wonderful human stories. So so really, when you kind of were sitting in that coffee house and you got the napkin out and you were sketching an idea in the back, you know, where's our kind of goals? What do we want to try and do with this? What came to the forefront of your minds? What was it? What, what, what really helped you meet your minds together? What was the subject matter and what was the goal that you were going to try and achieve in the next five years? So, um, I'll, yeah, I, the, the story that is true, which, which I vividly remember is David was telling me, we were talking about the economist article. He had talked about somebody that he had worked in a coaching, uh, executive, he's, he's executive coach. He would, he, had, he was working with somebody in an executive coaching program and, um, they were having some challenges. And I remember 
there was just a book popped into my mind and I thought, oh, it would be really great if they could read this book. And then David said, so I actually, I, I thought about recommending, and before he even said the word, I finished his sentence and said, oh, you, this book. And, and so we just sort of immediately locked eyes and thought, okay, this is, yeah, we're on the same page here. And the idea was, so the, the idea in that Philosopher's King article, the Philosopher King's article in The Economist was business leaders would benefit from studying great writers. That was sort of the idea. You could you could use a great books curriculum in business. Now, the reality is that most companies aren't going to pay. They have book clubs, but they're not going to pay consulting companies to come in and, and lead book discussions, probably. I mean, there's probably some one-off examples, but it's, I'm not sure it's a sustainable model. So we were trying to think, how do we actually take the values and the lessons that we learned from our humanities degrees and put them in professional language and put them in uh, consulting practice? Like, how do we take the same, how do we extract the, the 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 rich minerals from our uh, our philosophy backgrounds and put that into yeah into a consulting practice and that was what we spent the conversation we were trying to figure out what are the words and it just became a matter of translation so you think about things like um, dialogue versus the word communication or you think about words like ethics and values or you think about you know, so there's all of these different synonyms that you that you create and then you we built sort of a dictionary. And yeah, it was, it was just a matter of figuring out, okay, here's what we're going to, here's, here, here's how we're going to um, pitch this to businesses is why it, and why it's valuable to them. And it was great how you just explained that, that, you know, you finished the sentence for him. That was wonderful because it's like a great marriage in many ways, isn't it, business? If you've got the right partnership, that that synergy, that kind of almost anticipating what your partner is going to say is a wonderful magical potion to have, isn't it? It really is. It is. I was although I was watching an interview with uh, Peter Cook, the British comedian. And he was doing an interview with Peter. Peter it was Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and they were talking. They were sort of on the end of their partnership, and um, someone said, "Oh, you're sort of like a marriage." And and he said, "Yes, I guess we're like a marriage." And then the interviewer said, "How is it like a marriage?" And um, Peter Cook said, "We're getting divorced." And, um, <laughs> so no, David and I are not. We're 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 in a we're no we're we're still in the honeymoon phase, if you will, of our uh, of our professional relationship. So we're and we're doing well. I love that. I love how you referenced uh, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook because one of my favourite comedians or duos. I mean, the the I just love them when uh, you know they have the expression, don't they? When you're is it going to corp or corpse or something like that? You know, you're trying to make your partner laugh and you're doing this. You know, and I just that that is the best part of their sketches, isn't it? You just stand it and you know Peter Cook's just trying to make Dudley Moore laugh. And it's just like oh, he's trying to contain it. Anyway, we digress for a minute. Uh, so I wanted to go back to really kind of how you structured your company in terms of, okay, you've got a consultancy business, you kind of figured out what your roadmap was going to look like, but what were the logistics of actually getting your first gigs? I mean, that can be very difficult as a consultation uh, partnership because there's so many of them out there. How do you differentiate yourself? We had to figure out how do we get our name out there? How do we how do we share what we're doing? And the way that we thought about that was through writing an article. We wanted to do some sort of piece somewhere to just to talk about sort of what we brought us an article brought us together. So we thought, why don't we give it, why don't we give it a shot? And I had talked to David, we, we, we brainstormed quite a bit about what that article would look like. We had a connection to the editorial team at LinkedIn, who was, we were, you know, we're interested in doing something. And we wrote an article ended up being entitled why I left management consulting to start a philosophy company. It was all about that um, the journey sort of from the, the 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 sort of the numbers based mindset into the into the so the basically the transition from the quantitative world into the qualitative world and how they how those two intersect and how they can work together and be um, valuable. So wrote that article and published it on I think a Friday afternoon and 
we were expecting, I think the editors were expecting probably a few hundred, maybe a few, a few thousand views, nothing much. And by Sunday, I think in 72 hours, it was a number of one article on the site and it had over 300,000 views. And they were most excited about the comments because people were really engaged and having discussions in the comments with one another about sort of what we talked about in the article. And the, the most sort of telling thing was Look, we were, I mean, we were, when I say a startup with the lights barely flickering, we had a a loose idea on paper at that point when we published the article. We had 72 job applications, I think, within 36, it was something ridiculous. We had people applying left and right to come work with us um, in what we were doing. And we felt terrible because we we couldn't pay, we had nothing. We had, we didn't have a company yet. We were trying to figure out what we were doing. And so that was actually probably, in hindsight, it was, it was, uh, we, we missed an opportunity there because there was such momentum and there's so many great people who had reached out and we could have, um, had we had something a little bit more stable and had we published that article, maybe a couple of years in, um, it would have, it would have grown even further exponentially, but it was just, yeah, it was remarkable. So we knew we were on the, the right track and we had talked to some folks and, um, we actually, a friend of ours, who's a professor at, um, Harvard business school. And she said that, of all the all the things that you gather from that article, she said the most important piece of information for you is that you had that many job applications in a matter of days. She said that that should be a clear indication of something. I don't know what that something is, but that that's the most telling thing about that article. You know, that's incredible because, you know, we all try and fathom out what the LinkedIn algorithms are. You know, we try and figure out how we can get the best views and the most comments and what have you. And and for most people, it's a long road on LinkedIn or any other social platforms. It's a constant, you know, the, the Japanese drip torture, as I call it, you know, just you just have to keep being there and being regular. But what you really sort of summed up there was if you've really got a great idea, and you can put it down on paper. You can get your thoughts down on paper in a very logical way. And it just hits that right, you know, kind of thread or that kind of right feeling in society at that time. You're off to the races, aren't you? I mean, that, that's just phenomenal, isn't it? But um, so how did you capitalize on it? Obviously, you weren't there ready to employ people, which, you know, like you say, that happens so often because it's a little bit like, you know, the bands that just release a tune and they're backing singers and they haven't even got a band together to go on the road because everybody loved the tune. So how did you really capitalize on it? How did you manage to do something with that uh, momentum? Yeah, that's a great question. So we had, I think I was on the phone for probably two months straight after that. I mean, all day, every day, people were scheduling appointments just to talk. And a lot of it was just people asking questions and connecting. And I realized that after, but in, you know, at the time I was very naive and I thought, Oh, so-and-so wants it. Yeah, sure. I'll talk to anyone. And so I was on the phone for, I mean, literally two months. And after that sort of started to die down a bit, I got nervous because I thought, Oh my, how are we going to repeat this? How can we even, you know, and David was very uh, mindful and sort of uh, as always, always the, the strategic thinker and, and the smartest guy in the room. And he, and he said, you know, this is a thing that percolates. This is not something that's a flash in the pan and done. This is, this is going to continue to grow over time. Sure enough, I still, to this day, get comments and likes on that article, even though it was published five years ago. But what we did was we just, things did come from it. We did the TED talk, then we got the book. And then it was just sort of, it was a slow, slow, slow boulder. That was just like a snowball that was just accumulating and accumulating. And we can, we just tried to write more articles and just continue to um, share our message. And I think uh, what I, if there's any 
insight that I gained from that, that I would offer other people who are looking to publish um, and follow a similar path. It's that you can't force virality. You can't, it doesn't happen where it's like, oh, how do I get the million views? It's not that there's a, yes, there is, there are some things you can do to sort of, you know, hedge your bets a bit. But I learned this from our agent. We were talking about the book and she said, you know, bestsellers, you can put it on the front table at every bookstore and you could have it the best marketing plan in the world. And you could do arena tour. You could do anything we want with your book. You could be a major celebrity with millions of followers. And she said, that will help you with initial sales. But if you want to actually have a bestseller, the only way that you get a bestseller is that someone reads it and hands it to someone else and says, you have to read this. And that's with articles. That's what we have found and to be absolutely true is that it's when somebody shares it. That's the thing that leads to virality because then so-and-so reads it says, wow, I identify with this. I need to share this with my network or with this person. Um, and that was you know, sort of, we saw it. We see a lot of times in comments in our articles, people tagging other folks. Um, and so you, we tried to figure out the formula and the recipe. We tried to write articles that were formulaically the same or that had the same sort of word count or the same sort of, and it just doesn't, it, there's no, it's just a matter of, yeah, there's, there's definitely luck involved and timing and you can hedge your bets a bit with the content and making sure that it's well-written and sort of clear. But at the end of the day, it has to be something that people want to share. And I think the message of rehumanizing the workplace is something that people want to share. And because we've all worked in dehumanized environments, that was the, 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 when we were working on the book and we were trying to come up with case studies and stories to tell in the book, our biggest challenge with the book was that we had too many stories to tell. It was cutting down the number. It was the tragic truth is that we had way too many stories. It was a matter of figuring out, okay, what are the 10 stories that we're going to tell as opposed to how can we get 10 stories? Because everyone we talked to said, oh, I have a story for you. Every, everybody, everybody. So it was a matter of figuring out, okay, this, this belongs, this doesn't, or, you know, so everyone has that experience, whether it was them personally, a friend of theirs, family member, it was everyone knows what that toxic workplace is like. Oh man, you summed that up so well. There's so many questions I want to do off the back of that. So interesting enough, here's something I think uh, timing wise is quite interesting. I interviewed a guy by the name of Alex Draper from DX Consulting. And he was saying very much what you were saying about toxic work culture and what have you. And he managed to turn his own company around. He actually, he found out eventually he was working in the business but nothing great was happening and people were getting disenfranchised with what was happening and not you know and they were leaving in droves and eventually he had a hundred percent turnover in his company and he said okay i gotta shut the doors there's something very wrong here and he was he was open-minded enough to sort of go in front of the mirror and look at himself and say it stops with me it's clearly culture is me, you know, because he was the CEO of the business. So how much of it is, um, do you think in the last two years or maybe in the last five years since you've written the article, have a, have people kind of gone to the mirror and re-examined themselves and managed to come up with a kind of an idea? Okay, I, I went down the wrong path here. I've got to have a new roadmap. And do you think that's really happened wholesale with COVID as well? That is probably in part what led to the great resignation. So there's a lot of things that led to the great resignation. It's a combination of factors. Um, and we we wrote an article for Quartz a couple of months ago on this very subject. And in interviewing economists and reading some of the, the, the research that they, you know, they found that it probably is a mix of reasons why people are, were resigning in mass. It was 
okay, folks had extra money in the bank, folks who were ready to take an early retirement could do so. Um, for folks who were low wage workers, there was sort of a free agency period because it's not, you know, they, were, they weren't soul searching. They were just trying to get better pay and looking for better jobs and better benefits. So that's, you know, that's another uh, category altogether. Um, but yeah, there was this section, cross section of the world that was indeed soul searching during the pandemic and trying to figure out you know, all of a sudden when you're not in the rat race anymore and you're not commuting like crazy and you're just sort of sitting there in your home and you're thinking and you're doing your work, you're like, well, maybe there's actually something more to, uh, there's also some existential questions because of COVID. So there's just a, some deeper thought and reflection going on. And there were unquestionably, obviously, a, a, a significant percentage of folks who just said, I need to do something else or I need to rethink what I'm doing. And the the takeaway that we observed was we, we we went in the direction of Camus and sort of the myth of Sisyphus and that it's not so much that you're ever going to find the answer to what you're looking for, but just the fact that you're searching is great. So it's like, keep pushing the boulder up the hill. And, you know, Camus says that Sisyphus, he imagines Sisyphus is happy because he recognizes the absurdity of his fate, but he knows that what he's doing is he's going to continually push that boulder. And similarly, I think in the workplace, when you're figuring out what you want to do and who you want to be and what kind of role you want to have, that's a long journey. And maybe you'll find your dream job. Maybe, maybe you'll find that purpose. Maybe you'll align with a company that has identical values to yours. And that's great. And that's wonderful, but nothing's ever perfect. And so you're always going to be on a perennial quest and this search. And the fact that the search is never ending is something that I think people forget. And it's what matters is that not necessarily that you reach the destination, but what matters is that you stay on the search. Like you always want to try it. It's like, it's like an asymptote. You just want to try to get closer and closer and closer throughout your career. Interestingly enough, again, one of my other guests, I just interviewed a, an amazing psychologist. He worked in the kind of psychiatric wards of the 1970s in, in North America. And uh, that inspired him to become a, a, you know, a psychiatrist and to change the way that we deal with depression, deal with, you know, mental health and things like that. And it was interesting. He just did a, an introduction or kind of like a, a presentation to the, um, the Australian Psychologist Society. And what was very interesting and something about what you were just talking about there, about pushing that rock, keep pushing forward, keep going. He said the one thing you have to do, and especially with depression, he was talking about, he, he wants to give people practical ways of dealing with mental health issues around depression. And he said, one of the things that you shouldn't do, and this, this applies to business as well, I'm sure, and you can confirm it, is you can't look back. Don't keep looking back if, oh, you know, that was my childhood, that was my work thing. Somebody dominated me in a work position and it really made me the person I am now. He said, you've got to clear that away. You've got to leave that behind. And he said, you've got to push forward. And so is that very much how you guys approach it when you come to sort of deal with the individual companies where there is a toxic work culture, that you try and get them into that spirit of pushing the rock forward, even if it's a steep hill, keep, keep pushing it. That's the important thing. A lot of times with toxic workplaces, there's a bit of reconciliation that needs to happen because when you first walk in the door, people are at each other's throats. And we were, there was a client we were working with over the past couple of months that was a really toxic work environment to the point where people like executives were quitting over um, their exchanges with one another. Um, people were very emotional on the phone. I mean, it was just, it was a bad place. And that's not a fun spot to be for anybody. And, and I, having worked in one myself and, you know, that, that can be really just, it's just draining. 
and say it's it's easy to go in and say okay let's forget about the past let's just move forward we'll focus on the road ahead there's a lot of wounds that need healing uh around that board table and so one of the things that we try to do is sure we don't want to dwell on the past too long but we need to at least acknowledge and and say that there needs to be some reconciliation here um and have some dialogues around what happened and then figure out if there is a way to move forward. Because look there, we, we actually asked the executive this question. They were, they were wronged by a fellow employee. And I said, you know, is this something that is a deal breaker? Like, can you move forward? If you, if, if I go in tomorrow and I magically fix everything and I wave my magic wand and all of a sudden your company's, you know, profitable and, and moving ahead and all, all the, all that great stuff. Are you able to, have lunch with this person next month? Are you able to sit, sit around? And she said, I don't know. And if it's, if it's, if you're never able to look at the person the same way again, well, maybe it may be time to transition and think about, you know, different roles. So it's not that we say, don't think about the past. It's important to be mindful of the past because again, there can be, especially in toxic workplaces, there can be a lot of history there. Um, and so we just try to acknowledge it and have a conversation around it and figure out, is it going to be the albatross around your neck? Or is it something that you can work past? You know, can you sort of resolve differences and, and have a professional relationship moving? You don't have to be best friends with the person, but can you have a professional relationship moving forward? Yes or no. And if not, fine, we got to figure out next steps. But if if yes, okay, well, then we'll talk about it. But we need to address it first. We've, we've talked about toxic work coach, and I know we've done this in a previous podcast as well. Um, what do you see if you had your crystal ball and you were kind of viewing what's what's transitioning at the moment as we speak we're living in a transitional period at the moment people are now reassessing where they are in the world both in work and both in life if you were kind of looking at the crystal ball do you think that we're going to achieve what we need to achieve in terms of that great work environment is that an achievable goal in the next five or ten years what do you think well uh what i would say is they're often Change doesn't happen until they're sort of seismic events. So unfortunately, it's very difficult to create long-lasting change unless there's something that forces the change to occur. Perfect example of this is when I was working, I don't know, seven or eight years ago in finance, there was the company that I worked for had a real, real problem with the cost of real estate. They had a very expensive class A office space across major markets in the world. They were paying a fortune annually in real estate costs. And they were trying to figure out ways to save some money. And one of the HR managers said, I have an idea. You know, our our team members, they're up at six on their phones. They're at night working till 10, 11 o'clock. They're in the office, obviously, all day. What if we shifted to four 10-hour days or shifted to three 12 hour days, because we know that they're going to work uh, those but And then we stagger the schedules so that folks are sharing desks and sharing offices and we have collaborative work environments, and but they're only on site a certain number of days a week. And that way we can cut back our real estate footprint. And this would be a really creative way to keep the product productivity up, give people some more uh, work-life balance, and it would also save us a lot of money. Well, that when that took off like a lead balloon with the CFO because oh no they need to be here five days it was a sort of this old fashioned mindset of like no you need to have your ball and chain attached to your desk and you need to be working and have supervision and da 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 so obviously COVID occurred uh, a, a few years later and sure, what happened sure enough the company went to remote work and and everyone and they still managed to be profitable and so 
I don't know. I mean, like, like Warren Buffett says, I'm not in the business of making predictions, but for me, I don't think that I, I don't see a way back. The genie's out of the bottle as far as um, remote work, flexible work, uh, because clearly it can be done. The idea that you need to have a manager over your shoulder monitoring what you do every single day is it's just so profound. It was, I don't think it was ever appropriate, um, but it's like an 18th century business mindset that we need to really get out of. And the, the thing I always say to folks when, when, whenever there's a manager that says, well, no, I need to have people here to, to, you know, to monitor them. My response is if you need to monitor them from nine to five, why did you hire them? If there's somebody that you can't trust to work when they're home, why would you, why would you have hired them in the first place? That doesn't make sense to me. Like, why would you, if you, this isn't somebody that you value and respect and trust, I don't see why you're paying them a salary. So if it's somebody that you can trust to work wherever they are, because um, realistically we, we can do that now with technology, then I don't, I don't see why not. Um, so for me, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but at the, the, at the very least, I, yeah, I think the genie's out of the bottle as far as remote work is concerned and flexible work. And I would have to think that companies know this. And if they're going back to a, you have to be here mindset. I mean, of course there's jobs that you have to be on site. I understand there's like sort of manufacturing jobs. You're not going to have the, the, the assembly line move to living room. I get that. But there are for roles that don't require you to be on site. I think that the, yeah, the genie's out of the bottle there. You're halfway through listening to On the Trap with me, David Wilson. We're speaking to Ryan Stelzer, co-founder of Strategy of Mind. Next, I wanted to ask Ryan a little bit about family and where they were from. And then was there any lurking secrets in the cupboard? Yeah, my family, well, any any sort of prison records is was a great place to look for my family history. Any <laughs> European prison records would be the, um, no, I, um, my, yeah, my family's, uh, as most American families are, an immigrant family and came over in the mid to late 19th century from Western Europe and Italy. And so we have sort of, I have a mix of Scottish, British, German, Irish, Italian, Czech. It's a, it's just a sort of mix of Western and Central Europe. And so I'm a mutt in that sense. As far as, well, actually, so funny story I will tell you about my surname is that there's a mystery in my family tree. So if there's any genealogists out there who are interested in taking this on, we would love to know because uh, if you're interested, because my family has never solved this mystery. So I'll tell you the, the story. Yeah, it's a bit of a, I would love to go on uh, who do you think you are with um, oh, it'd be great, yeah. <laughs> the story. So, all right, very simple. So my dad has a mom and dad, obviously, and his dad, so my grandfather, um, was uh had a had a mom and dad um and that dad is a mysterious of mysterious origin so my great great my great great grandfather basically um that's why my, so you tra- trace the men in, on my dad's side um that's why the last name stelzer what apparently happened was there was a, a, a housemaid in long island a german housemaid who was a young woman who was working in a, I believe as a maid and all of a sudden gave birth and was that baby was raised by her parents. So the last name actually stayed hers because there was on the, we've seen the birth certificate. There's no name on their father. Wow. So the speculation is that it was sort of the wealthy person who, who she worked for. Um, but my last name could be what, yeah, would, would actually have been whatever that, um, that person's name was, whoever that is, but there's a mystery. We don't know who it is. That's incredible. So she was this German immigrant maid 
who had a baby at a young age and then um yeah then it carried the last name down through the male the male line so we have a mystery in our in our yeah my last name is only because there was no father acknowledged uh on the birth certificate and that, that kind of let's be frank about that kind of happened quite a lot didn't it uh, unfortunately yes. unfortunately yeah. did but uh but that's interesting isn't it wow that would be incredible to go on. Who do you think you are? I love that program. So, okay, whereabouts did family settle though? So where did mom and pa kind of get to and, and where did you guys sort of evolve from? Yeah, they they wound up in the Western part of Massachusetts, a little bit in and around New York as well, um, especially in the New England area. It was um, all around, yeah, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts. And so, and everyone had stayed there since. And so my family is deep roots in Western Massachusetts going back, yeah, over basically 120 years or so. So it's been, we've been, we've been around there. I, 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 I moved away. Um, but um, no, my, my mom and dad are still out in Western Massachusetts and that's where everyone's, everyone sort of stayed rooted. And yeah. And you asked too, sort of folks who were influential. I, there was no, I, I, there were a number of people who were very um, helpful along the way and who were very sort of good mentors. I, I would never admit this to his face, but David actually was, is, I, I do consider to be a mentor of mine and we're business partners and co-authors, but as I said, he's a little bit older than me. So I look up to him immensely and consider him to be like a big brother. And so he's been, um, he's been a wonderful mentor on the journey. And then I just was very fortunate to have great, um, a very supportive family. And then uh, some wonderful professors who were, who were, who took an interest and just sort of said, you know, um, things, things look a little bit differently in the real world than, than you might think. And so uh, just having, having a good, a good support network. Yeah. There was no one individual that I'd say like, Oh, this one person was, was the, the formative person for me, but it was a, again, like the book, it was a team effort. And, and I may have asked this question before, cause I'm still intrigued, but I can't remember the answer to be perfectly honest, but um, you know, it, when you were 11 or 12, did you think I'm going to be a philosopher when I grow up? You know, this is a, cause that's a really big step for a lot of people. You you have to have a kind of certain way of thinking and a certain kind of view in the world to really take that step to doing philosophy and what have you. So where did that kind of seed get planted? How did that occur? Um, the truth is, I'll tell you the honest answer. The truth is that when I went to college, there was, they, it was the last year that they actually had a physical book of majors. You'd get a book in the mail. It was a thick, like a, like a phone book. Not that young people know what a phone book is either, but it was a thick book of all of the degree programs you could pursue. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll look through the book. And I didn't know I was, I entered undecided. And then when I was looking through the major list, I got to a, and I thought, Oh, art history. That's I could, I could study that. What's something I could do for four years when you're, when you're 18, four years is an eternity. So I thought, I mean, I could do art history for four years. That's cool. I'll do, I'll do art history. And then I kept scanning down the list and I got to H and I got to history. And I thought, well, maybe that's a little bit broader than art history. I can do art history and I can learn about, I love history. So why don't I do history? And then I kept going and then I got to P and uh, I thought philosophy, that's different. So that's history kind of a little bit, but it's also thinking. And so why don't I, why don't I try philosophy? And that it was honestly, it was, it was, it was that stupid. I, I love that. And, and thanks for being so honest. Cause that is really how life is sometimes determined, isn't it? It's got like, you know, here we are, right. Boom, shut your eyes. Oh, okay. I'll do that. And I think the, the the way you approached it was you had an open mind. Is that right? You had an interest in something, but you had an open mind. Let's give it a try. 
Yeah, I was curious. And I, you know what? You can always change your major. If it's something I didn't like, I would I would shift. If I could go back and do it all over again, would I pursue a different degree? Probably not, actually. But maybe I would have taken different classes and exposed myself to different subjects as well. And um, but like, uh, but yeah, at the time, it was just I was open to it. And I didn't really know what because you don't. That's actually of all of the subjects on the list in college. Philosophy is probably the only one that I can think of that you don't have any exposure to typically in high school. You have not, you have no, like you didn't do that in second grade. Like you, you know, you weren't, it's one of those subjects that is new in college. And so I was sort of curious about, uh, yeah. And the new frontier, you know, actually you make a really good point there. And I'm intrigued by that, what you just said there, you don't, don't get it taught in second grade, but what is the, the history of philosophy teaching over the millennia? You know, were people taught at second grade at a very young age to think in a philosophical way so that when they got to maturity, that they already had the tools in the toolbox. Are we missing something at the moment? Are we missing something in our society about going back and teaching that at an early age? Oh, uh, yeah. The education system, uh, I wish we could just uh, talk about a magic wand. I wish there were things we could do a lot differently. But yeah, you hear about um, sort of education in the 17th century or 16th century. Not that we want to go back, obviously, that we want to remain in sort of this enlightened state that we're in, uh, if we call it that. But yeah, there were subjects that were taught that were um, introduced to folks at a younger age that I, I think we, I mean, look, I mean, there's, 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 if, even if we just go simplistically and say arts and we talk about arts versus sciences, school districts are cutting arts budgets. So students aren't learning things like music, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's fail. forget about yeah. philosophy, just like just basic sort of the human things that we value. And, and, uh, um, it's, it's, it's like the line in dead poet society where Robin Williams says like, yeah, math and science and law, those are all noble pursuits, but it's the, it's, it's the music and poetry that we stay alive for. Like the noble pursuits are necessary to sustain life, but we stay alive for things like art and music. And so um, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I'm not in education. I think I would, that would have been a frustrating major and a frustrating career path, but it definitely needs of some reform, but it, it just at a broad level, thinking about arts versus sciences, we need to at least introduce students to the arts. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. It fires their imagination. That's that's really what you've got to try and get going here. That's the most important thing. Listen, I could talk to you about philosophy and arts and everything for hours. You know we could. But I want to just kind of get ourselves back to onto, you know, on the track as, as far as your business was concerned. Now, you are the co-founder of at Strategy of Mind. So tell us a little bit about your business and, and let's relate that back to the book because it would be really good just to wander our way back to there. Yeah, so we basically do, we, we have three buckets in which we operate. One is we do keynote speaking and sort of the, the, the we go in and have a, give a talk at a conference or at your organization. That's one lane. Um, another lane is executive coaching. So we'll do either one-on-one, one-on-two, small group. Uh, we also have a scalable coaching program. So we do scalable coaching for companies at a, at a discounted cost uh, with a virtual program. So um, that way you can coach a hundred people as opposed to um, only being having, maybe having the budget for, you know, for one or two. And we can, we can do a hundred for, for less. And then um, we do consulting engagements. So sort of your, it, it, those are bespoke and those, as they come in generally, obviously around performance and, and ca- in human capital development. So whether that's media training or, or, or strategy or um, values reorientation or identifying mission and purpose, any, any kind of sort of consulting project that comes in, we'll do, um, if we think it's a good match and we can do a good job at it. If not, we just refer it out. But those are our sort of our three buckets. We do keynote speeches and and uh, talks at organizations and conferences, 
coaching and executive coaching and then um, consulting. And if you were looking at your kind of ideal client, and I know that's a kind of, you know, that never really exists, but really in terms of the people that you have found have been attracted to your business, specifically what are the ones that tend to have the great success where they really get on, on that track? Uh, when we first started, we had no answer to this question. It was very frustrating because we, we didn't know where to focus our efforts and our energy and who, you know, who would be a likely candidate when they contacted us. We have found that the, I describe it as tier two companies. That's not a great term for it because then it makes it sound like they're not tier one companies. But when I say tier two companies, what I mean is they are companies that are large enough to have a budget to hire us, but they are still not a fortune one company in that they're not household famous names that they're trying to get to be household famous names. So they have a budget to hire us, but they're eager to grow and eager to expand and eager to, you know, so they are not necessarily, I don't know, I don't want to name a company, but they're not, um, the, the brand that you necessarily see, um, broadcast all over, uh, TV and on media, but they're the one that's trying to unseat that top brand. So we're, uh, we, we, we sort of work with companies that are hungry. That's, that's the way I think about it. And that's why I say that's probably a better phrase than tier two, because tier two makes it sound like, oh, they're not tier one companies. No, they are, but they're trying to, they're trying to unseat the folks who are at the, at the top of the mountain. And just so if some of those companies that, you know, the young upstarts, as I call them, are maybe listening in and thinking, oh, you know, what Ryan's saying here is really, really good. What would be a kind of a roadmap for them in terms of if they reach out to you initially, you know, they've got some basic things they have to get right in the culture, but they need to get out the other side. Do you have a kind of timeline a lot of the time where you can get things done in a fairly decent period of time? And then there's the touching base later on. What does that look like? We always try to work with clients on timelines and objectives. And that's one of the first um, conversations that we have is, is te- you know, tell us what you're looking for. Tell us that idealized state. What's the perfect world look like? And then we figure out if we can help you build that and construct that. The mindset we have across all of our engagements, whether that's even keynote speaking or whether that's consulting and of course coaching, is we try to approach it from a coaching mindset. A lot of times consulting companies go in, they give you the binder, they say, here's the best, here's what you got to do do this, implement it, give us our check for a million dollars and we'll leave. We go in there with the mindset of you're the expert. We're not the expert. We're not accountants. We don't know what, how to, you know, but we believe that you are. And so we try to extract from you the knowledge and expertise that you maybe have blinders on, uh, you know, uh, regarding. So our, our approach to consulting projects is always, we're here to support you and enable you and empower you, not go in and tell you, here's what you have to do. Um, it's more about developing you as a thought leader in the space, as opposed to we are the thought leaders so pay us the money. Let's go back to the book very briefly. I just want to make sure that we've covered all the bases on the book. So who's the ideal person for the book that you've written? I mean, who would be somebody who just needs to pick this up, grab a cup of coffee and immerse themselves in it? So we, when we went into our publisher meeting, they asked us, they said, who's the reader? They said, who's your target reader? And we told them and our, it sort of caught our editor off guard because I, you know, he was expecting me to say the CEO, a lot of business books are written for senior executives and our book can be read by senior executives. And we, uh, we encourage that. We'd love for CEOs to buy our book and read them. That would be wonderful. But at the end of the day, it actually wasn't who we wrote the book for. Um, we wrote the, as I said to the publisher and the editor that day in our meeting, I said, you know, a lot of these books are written for the corner office, but we're writing this for the people who are in the cubicles looking at the corner office. So it's, that was our target reader was the, was the person who flies Southwest airlines, who drives a Toyota, who, you know, goes to work every day. And we talk about it in the book that you, um, 
CEOs are great readers and they're the people that sometimes yeah, lead organizations top down and they set the tone and they absolutely. But this sort of approach to rehumanizing the workplace is also a ground up approach. And it is something that you have to have, you have agency in. So as an individual employee, you have the capability to rehumanize the workplace. Yes, the CEO probably has more of a capability because they have more power and authority and more influence, but you can still exert some influence as an individual employee in the cubicle. And so our target reader is the person in the cubicle looking at the corner office, not necessarily the person in the corner office. Oh man, you said that so well, because you see, this is where I'm getting a great vibe from your company is, is all about you, you're doing it organically, you're kind of planting the seeds, you're, you're, you're dealing with the little upstarts, you know, the young upstart company, and you're dealing with the people who potentially are the pretenders to the throne eventually, they're eventually going to get there. So you're really instilling that at a much lower level, grow it organically. And when they get there, they're already breathing and, and espouting the you know the, the thoughts that you are, are putting forward you know the ideas and that's such a great way of doing it because it's a legacy isn't it right, we, yeah we do it as investments there you are that sums it up and as investments okay so let's um let's figure out how people can get a hold of the book yeah so we're with uh we, we're very fortunate to be with the chat they're a great publisher and we uh, pitched the book and went to new york with our agent and uh, we're very fortunate that they took an interest and and they've been great to work with. Ryan, if if somebody really wanted to reach out to you and they, they love what they've they've heard, they've read the book, they really are on board about the way that you're approaching the workplace. What's the best way of getting hold of you and David? Yeah, our our company email address is the best. It's coaches at strategyofmind.com. Um, that's always the easiest way. You can go on our website, www.strategyofmind.com. There's also a contact form there. That's, that's super easy. Um, you can reach out on LinkedIn. You can reach out. We're, we're anything if we're not available. So we're uh, always trying to connect with folks and have those conversations and answer any questions that they might have. Okay. Well, that is fantastic. And thanks for that. Now I, I have that final question that I always ask people, which is, you know, when you're 18, blah, blah, blah. I can't ask that of you because you've already answered that in the previous podcast. So folks, if you want to hear what um, Ryan said, you know, if he was 18 again, what he would do, go back to podcast number three. I think it is on another track. So I'm going to take a different approach because as a learned soul, as somebody who's really out there, you've gone through and created this company. I'm going to ask you a different other end of life kind of question here. When you get to retirement at 60 or 65, what sort of legacy do you want to leave for the workplace? First of all, that's a great question. I never see myself retiring. That is not something that that is not in my lexicon. I I think I will be, uh, you know, I'll be in the office as long as I can. And I, I have a bit of a workaholic mindset, but I, I think if the work, I had a coach when I was playing hockey growing up that always had this line, he would always say, you want to leave the world a little bit better off than when you got here. Like you just want to like, whatever you touch, you just want to make sure that it's improved in some way, shape or form by you having been involved with it. And so I think for me, because of the work we do, if the company, I, I view it almost as like a museum, like if the companies that we worked with, if the, if the paintings can still hang in the museum, 90, 100, 150 years later, then we've done a good job. So it's like, we're sort of building a museum and, and we want to make sure that we're, that that museum continues to grow and continues to be a value to people who want to come see the businesses and come see the paintings. And so um, I have that sort of museum mindset. And, and that's a really, really great analogy. And we're not talking about a traditional museum. We're talking about a museum that's organic. It's growing. It's still evolving. So when you come back and see the picture in another five years time, it's slightly changed. It's got a slightly different perspective. Is that fair to say? 
Absolutely fair to say. Yeah, we it's uh, it would be the world's first, yeah, I guess, maybe sort of um, living museum. <laughs> Great. Well, listen, it's always a pleasure to speak to you because we have so much to talk about. And I always have such a list of questions on my notepad that I don't get to. Um, because we often sort of go off and, and tangents, and but great tangents. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, would you do me the pleasure again, maybe in 12, 18 months again, to touch base? Because I would love to sort of see how things are progressing with the Organic Living Museum, for sure. Absolutely. No, of course. I'd be I'd be delighted to. And thank you for having me. And uh, it was, I think, if the if the spurt that we had after our last podcast is any indication, I have a busy few months coming ahead. So, for, so I appreciate the uh yeah, the, your, your, your nudge. You know, that's my legacy I'd like to leave the world, is one of, <laughs> of inspiration or even fuel, jet fuel, going in the, the gas tank. Let's do that. Let's get that spur going and, and let's go for it. Listen, Ryan, good luck with everything. I mean, guys, I, I think you are really, you know, you're going in the right direction. Spread the word. Get another book on, on the go and maybe in five years' time and tell us what that looks like and uh, let's get it out there. But I wish you the best of luck, you and David, uh, on your journey and just keep going in that direction. Keep going forward. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Take care. Take care. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Ryan Stelzer, co-founder of Strategy of Mind, rebuilding and rehumanizing your workplace. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.